This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. On this week's episode, we're discussing the first woman of color to serve in the U.S. Congress, Representative Patsy Mink. Patsy Matsu Takamato was born in Hawaii Territory on December 6th, 1927. She was a third-generation Japanese-American, or Sansei, born to Sumatsu Takamato and Mitama Tatayama Takamato. In 1944, Patsy graduated from Maui High School, where she was class president and valedictorian. And she chose to attend college on the mainland, first at Wilson College, in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, and then at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. At the University of Nebraska, Patsy organized a coalition of students, parents, administrators, and others to lobby to end the racial segregation policy that required students of color to live in separate dorms from white students. The coalition was successful. But because of illness, Patsy returned to Honolulu for her final year of college, graduating from the University of Hawaii, where she earned bachelor's degrees in zoology and chemistry. Patsy had planned to become a doctor, but she was denied admission by several medical schools because she was a woman. So instead, she went to law school graduating from the University of Chicago Law School in 1951. Patsy was one of only two women and one of only two Asian Americans to graduate in her class. At the University of Chicago, Patsy met a graduate student in geology named John Francis Mink. They married in 1951, and in 1952, their only child, Gwendolyn was born. The family moved to Hawaii, where John worked with the Hawaiian Sugar Planters Association. Hawaiian territorial law said that Patsy had lost her Hawaiian residency when she got married, and they wouldn't permit her to take the bar examination. Patsy challenged the sexist law and the Hawaiian Attorney General ruled that she should be permitted to take the exam. When she passed in June 1953, Patsy became the first Japanese-American woman licensed to practice law in Hawaii. However, law firms would not hire a married woman with a child. So Patsy opened her own private practice and then became active in politics. Here is Patsy Mink talking in 1975 
about how difficult it was to break into legal work as a woman. It was really very difficult. I hate to say it, but, and I won't mention the name of the law school, but I got into my law school uh, on the grounds that they considered me a foreigner. I got in as a, on the foreign quota. Someone in the law school had not read up their American history and hadn't realized that Hawaii was annexed in 1898 <laughs> and that we were all American citizens. <laughs> but it was very difficult getting into, into school and getting into the professions. I couldn't find a job. And when all of my contemporaries at home say, oh my goodness, what you've done to politics at home, and you know, wish we had never heard of Patsy Mink, I'll say, well, it's because of all of your attitudes that drove me into politics. If you'd given me a job when I came home from law school, I would have been very happy <laughs> just drawing a paycheck each month. Patsy's work with the Young Democrats led to her running for office herself and she was first elected to the Territorial House of Representatives in 1956. She moved up to the Territorial Senate in 1958. When Hawaii became a state in 1959, Patsy ran for the U.S. House. But the Democratic boss of Hawaii, John Anthony Burns, worked against her, and she lost her primary. After a term in the Hawaii State Senate from 1962 to 1964, Patsy again ran for the U.S. House when reapportionment created a second at-large seat for Hawaii. This time, she won, making her the first woman of color to serve in the U.S. Congress. In the U.S. House, Patsy served on the Committee on Education and Labor, which allowed her to focus on her key issues. She introduced or sponsored legislation on childcare, bilingual education, student loans, special education, and Head Start. In 1971, her legislation to institute a national daycare system was passed by both houses of Congress as part of the Economic Opportunity Act but President Richard M. Nixon vetoed the bill in what Patsy called one of the real disappointments of her political career. In 1974, Congress passed a comprehensive education bill, which included Mink's Women's Educational Equity Act. Here is Patsy talking about the act. It's always been my belief that no matter how many laws we passed or how many constitutional amendments we were successful in having ratified, that the major problem in any society was the attitudes that people grew up with or were made to believe were sacred traditions of their civilization. And so long as any part of our society uh, adheres to a sexist notion that uh, men should do certain things and women should do certain things and then begin to inculcate our babies with these notions through curriculum development and so forth, then we'll never be rid of the basic causes of sex discrimination. So the Women's Educational Equity Provision, which is designed to provide monies for small groups, institutions, women's organizations, school systems, universities, whatever, 
to try to uh, grapple with this problem, do some very intensive work in curriculum revision textbooks. Why do all of the women, for instance, in a uh, child's primer have to be uh, pictured as homemakers with uh, aprons on in the kitchen? Never anything very exciting beyond being a nurse. The doctor is always a man. The lawyer, the engineer, the always statesman man. is always, always a man. man. And this is the kind of very subtle way in which, uh, in my view, uh, girls and women are discouraged from fulfilling their potential. And so I suppose the purpose of my bill is really to free the human spirit, to make it possible for everyone to achieve according to their talents and wishes. Patsy worked with Representative Edith Starrett Green of Oregon and Senator Birch Evans by of Indiana to build support for Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, landmark legislation that prohibited sex discrimination in any education programs. Patsy Mink became the first Asian American woman to run for president in 1972, the same year that Shirley Chisholm ran. The two were not competing against each other. Mink was on the ballot in only a few states, and she was running to draw attention to the anti-war movement. Her opposition to the Vietnam War led some opponents to call her Patsy Pink. In 1976, she ran for the U.S. Senate, but lost the primary to fellow House member Spark Matsunaga. Once out of Congress, Patsy served as the Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans and International Environmental and Scientific Affairs in the Carter administration, and then for three years was President of Americans for Democratic Action. Finally, she returned to Hawaii and was elected to Honolulu City Council, where she served from 1983 to 1987 chairing for part of that time. After unsuccessful runs for mayor and governor, Patsy ran again for Congress with the campaign slogan, The Experience of a Lifetime. On September 22, 1990, Patsy Mink returned to the U.S. House, where she once again served on the Committee on Education and Labor, and she was also appointed to the Government Operations Committee. In her second service in the House, Patsy co-founded the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus in 1994 and served as its chairwoman for several years. Often in the House minority, Patsy found herself opposing legislation that challenged the progress made in her earlier time in Congress. Following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, Patsy worried about the ramifications of the establishment of the Department of Homeland Security. As a Japanese-American, Patsy knew well how civil liberties could be undermined in the name of national security. In 2002, Patsy contracted chickenpox, which led to pneumonia. After a month in the hospital, Patsy died 
on September 28th of that year. She was 74 years old. She had won the House primary just a week before she died, and her name remained on the ballot in November 2002, when she was posthumously re-elected to Congress. Her vacant seat was filled by Ed Case after a special election. After Patsy's death, she was awarded a Medal of Freedom, and Title IX was renamed the Patsy Mink Equal Opportunity in Education Act. Joining me now to help us understand more about Patsy Mink and her incredible life are Dr. Judy Tsuchun Wu, Professor of Asian American Studies at the University of California, Irvine, and Dr. Gwendolyn Wendy Mink, former professor of politics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and former professor of women and gender studies at Smith College, and the chair of the Patsy Takamoto Mink Education Foundation for Low-Income Women and Children. Drs. Wu and Mink have co-authored a new book, Fierce and Fearless, Patsy Takamoto Mink, First Woman of Color in Congress. Judy, Wendy, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I am so excited about this episode. So I I wanted to start uh, maybe just by talking a little bit about how this project came together. Uh, So I know, Judy, you'd been working on this for uh, a while before Wendy got involved. So can you talk sort of how how you got the idea for this book and, and started working on this project? I started in 2012. And I remember when I first met Wendy and she asked how long I thought the book would take. I said maybe 10 years because that's been the average for my other books. I think she was really shocked. But 10 years later, here we are. And actually, I think Wendy has a longer history with this project, given that she was Patsy's daughter. She is Patsy's daughter and that um, Patsy wanted Wendy to, to work on the project. I found Patsy's papers to the Library of Congress website. And as a historian, I'm so excited when there's archival collections. But I was surprised at the level of, of materials that were that were in the archives. There's 2,700 boxes. I had always known of Patsy Mink, and actually, I was a little bit surprised that no one else had written a book about her. I remember emailing my friends and colleagues and just saying, "Is anybody working on her?" So it just felt like such a wonderful opportunity to be able to try to document her life and to share that with the public. So, Wendy, had you considered before uh, Judy got in touch with you doing anything, writing a book or anything about your mom? Yes, I had. I was sort of in the process of sort of agonizing with myself about how to exactly go about writing the book. My mother's papers are all at the Library of Congress. It took a few years for the papers to be processed by the archivists and so forth. But when that process was completed, I started to sort of putter around episodically in the collection to basically on a chronological basis sort of track out the elements of the story that I would need to compile. And that puttering began in maybe 2007, 2008. By 2010, 2011, I was kind of at a point where I could write about the early part of her life up to 
uh, her opposition to the war in Vietnam. But at that moment, I was besieged by sort of intrapsychic angst over the choice of voice that I needed to make to tell the story because I am a scholar, I'm a political scientist, and everything that I've ever written has been in that voice of the third party uh, outsider, uh, dispassionate observer and analyst and so forth. But on the other hand, this would be an intimate story of my mother's life. So I kind of whined and agonized and sort of treaded water uh, over those issues until miraculously Judy entered my life. And it's, it's such a wonderful uh, collaboration and solution that, that you have done, that, that we get to have these, these more sort of intimate vignettes from Wendy and then the, the more uh, analytical, dispassionate uh, pieces uh, from Judy. So I really love that, that you were sort of able to put that together. What did that uh, process of working together and sort of figuring out the structure of the book, what, what did that process look like? I began just by informally consulting with Wendy and then we did oral histories. And then I learned about her mother's desire for her to write her biography. And I think it just made a lot of sense for us to collaborate. Um, but I also like the idea of having two distinct voices because Wendy has these powerful memories that are so beautifully written in, in the book. And I, I wanted to make sure that her voice was there. We played around a little bit with the formatting because should the historical chapters come first or should her vignettes come come first? And I, I really like what we've settled on. And actually the that process of trying to figure out figuring out how we're gonna put our two pieces together shaped the way we wrote our pieces. So early on I would write the chapters and then Wendy would write the vignettes. And then then when you wrote the vignettes and I wrote the chapters, but we were um, actually we both we're not looking at each other's writings. We talked about the topic that would be in the chapter, but we didn't look at each other's writings as we were composing our own. And then only afterwards did we come together and think about the ways in which they, they interwove with each other. We were concerned about possible redundancy, right, between the, the memories and the historical narrative. So, you know, certainly when we brought the pieces together to sort of uh, create the tableau that is the book, we had to be aware and pay attention to correcting any issues that arose. But it all kind of, you know, once we sort of decided on the sequence, like vignettes first, companioning with chapters, it all sort of fell together very nicely. And our conversations produced kind of an implicit agreement about the topics that had to be covered. So the 10 chapters, 10 substantive narrative chapters cover those subjects that we determined had to be covered. There were other topics that we could have covered, but we didn't have the word count <laughs> that, you know, permitted us to, to go there. Yeah, this could have been like a 10 volume work, but uh, it's it's wonderful uh, what the sort of breadth of topics you are able to cover within the word count that you're looking at. One of the things, one of the sort of topics, ideas I wanted to to talk through some, uh, Judy, you talk a lot about intersectional feminism. And of course, you know, this starts way before Kimberly Crenshaw is using the word intersectional feminism. Um, but you're talking about how that's sort of the, the guiding principle in, uh, in Patsy Mink's work in her life. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, sort of how, 
how you see that intersectional feminism working along her career? Yeah, that's a really wonderful question. And I think there's some, so many things about Patsy Mink that are exceptional, but she's often forgotten in popular culture and historical narrative. And the reason she gets dropped out of the historical narrative, and first of all, I think our, the way we imagine feminist icons is very much along the lines of white and black. And for someone to come from Hawaii to the halls of Congress is um, sometimes beyond the political imaginary for a lot of Americans. And in fact, when she was going to school on the continent of the United States, she would often be regarded as an international student, even though she was a US citizen, and even though she had grown up in the territory of the United States. I think also the fact that she was a she was in the mainstream of politics, she was in electoral office, is also a little bit beyond the scope of people's imaginations when they're thinking about social movements and about radicalism. And so I think talking about her life then really challenges the way we think about feminism, challenges the way we think about politics, challenges the way we think about race. But that's what she brought with her, that she had this intersectional understanding about class, about race, about gender. And it's something that's really deeply ingrained because of who she is, a third generation Japanese American who grew up in Hawaii. Those social hierarchies were very much present in her life, um, coming from a plantation society, coming of age during World War II, the Cold War, early Cold War, um, as a woman who's trying to, trying to enter medical school, to try to become a working lawyer, right? Those personal experiences shape the type of politician she becomes, shapes the political vision that she has about what the law can do to try to open up avenues for people who are marginalized within Wendy, you society. used a term, I, I was familiar with intersectional feminism, but you used a term that I, I hadn't heard uh, before, which is topic extinction. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about what, what that means and, and the way you see that, that topic extinction playing out and being important. Well, um, I borrowed the concept um, from a former colleague of mine at UC Santa Cruz, Aida Hurtado, who first deployed it in writing about Chicano feminism, I think probably in the 1980s or 1990s. Um, the way I deploy the, the concept is as, an, as a method of erasure, really, of displacement of the voices of women of color uh, when they bring up issues. And it can manifest in different ways. It can be uh, sort of a, a, a white male taking over the issue and claiming ownership and thus displacing the perspective and the experience and the idea that is contributed by the woman of color or the movement of women of color that puts the topic on the table in the first place. Or it could be just not listening at all so that there's a complete silence assigned to the perspective and so forth. And we see that happening, especially as in, in the course of the 1990s, as the numbers of women in Congress and women of color in Congress increase, there's this way in which women are, the women members are, they all obviously are strong and articulate and, and fighters, but there's a, a way in which they are looked upon as troops in a, you know, sort of mainstream Democratic Party fight as opposed to people who can shift the discourse, uh, who can stretch the boundaries of what policy ought to consider and, and so forth. We saw that a lot with uh, welfare politics and we saw it in other 
aspects of, of sort of gendered understandings of social justice issues and civil rights issues and, and the like. One of the things, and Judy, you just brought this up too, uh, that that was so interesting, I think, in reading this is is thinking about the the sort of strategy of politics uh, for Patsy Mink, and that's both sort of being outside and inside at the same time, and so being willing to stand up to her own party, to her own colleagues, in and in times you know facing backlash for that but at the same time understanding when and how to compromise so that legislation actually gets through so i i wonder if you could both reflect on that uh, a little bit sort of what what that looks like and you know maybe some examples of of how that plays out the you know sort of being both willing to stand up but uh, but also knowing sort of how to how to get legislation actually through well, I think it, it was always kind of a, a, I don't want to say dance, something sort of uh, politically challenging to figure out exactly when sort of coalitional compromises were necessary to get, get something through versus when standing your ground was necessary in order to advance the notion for the next cycle of debate that might ensue five years down the road, 10 years down the road and the like. And over the course of my mother's legislative history, I think you see her doing both things. Sometimes when the window for winning on a social justice, let's just say as an example, a social justice issue is, you know, barely open. The thing that she would decide to do is to um, stake out the clear position and sort of push the envelope uh, for the next round so that there's a legislative record of, you know, sort of different forms of thinking or different perspectives on, on issues. And so that the groundwork, uh, can, you don't have to invent out of whole cloth the next time the issue is confronted. In the 1990s, I think that there, you know, when it looked less possible to accomplish what social justice forces, progressive forces wanted to accomplish because of neoliberalism and the uh, nature of the Clinton Democratic Party and so forth, it was more necessary to cobble out some victories along the way because you could actually materially improve people's lives in smaller ways than the big picture that you were actually seeking to uh, accomplish. I think the two periods in which she served, the 60s, 70s, and the 90s to 2002 offer very different contexts for approaching political strategy, basically, about um, how to proceed, but always the, with the goal in mind of, of figuring out the best way to move toward the just objective, right? It, it may not be the same way in one ethic as it is in another, but the, the general goal of reaching toward justice was always uh, the motivating factor. I really like Wendy's response. I think most people think about politics as, as exclusive about compromise and about compromising right positions. And what I really respect about Patsy Mink is that she was willing to state the principles, to stick to um, what she believes is just. Um, I, I talk about this a lot, but there's a great documentary about Patsy Mink called Ahead of the Majority. 
And that phrase is from a speech that she gives when she runs for the Senate. She loses that election, but she talks about how you need to be politically courageous and not wait for something to be safe and popular to support it. And so I see that repeated over and over again. And when Wendy was talking about the 1990s, I remember talking to Wendy, like they did not have the votes to reform welfare along the lines of trying to eradicate poverty, not along the lines, which was the political dominant discourse at the time of punishing people who are impoverished, right? Especially women um, with children, uh, predominantly women of color with children. And I, I was just interested that, you know, why did they fight so hard, even though they knew they could not win? They just did not have the votes. And I, I love Wendy's response, which is that you need to have this record of opposition, right? You need to show that people thought differently about this. Um, and I, I respect that so much of Patsy Mink and, and her allies over and over again. They were going to take that position of principle. What I think also is very interesting is that regardless of what she actually did, people perceived her in that way. <laughs> So, um, you know, her her male colleagues would be like, oh, she's not kind of playing the game. Like she's being too strong. She's being too inflexible. And partly that's in response to her. But I think it's also male responses to women who are in positions of leadership, that there's certain fear about them occupying that status. And then the final thing I'll just say is that I've been doing more work on the National Women's Conference and Mink and Bella Opsu co-sponsor that legislation it was the first and only time that the federal government gave money to um, create the possibilities of a, of a national women's agenda. And there I see a lot of respect between Mink and Opsuk, who were very close friends. And Mink was working behind the scenes, trying to advocate for the most amount of resources. But she also wanted to give Bella credit. So she would say, you know, you know it doesn't have to be public, right? This can just be behind the scenes. I can help work for this. Um, so I see that she's being very politically savvy and she's also being very politically respectful of, of people that she that she trusts. And, I want to follow and up on, on that a little bit, because I think there's this sort of popular conception of second wave feminism as sort of women all out for themselves and, and sort of pushing each other down to, to get ahead. Uh, and that's clearly not what is going on here. You know, there there's this great sort of sisterhood uh, that you're able to talk about with with Bella Abzug, with Shirley Chisholm, uh, and then later with Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi. And it, it's just sort of uh, incredible to, to see these, these connections and these women supporting each other. Uh, could you talk about that a little bit? Because you, you uh, Judy, you go back to that several times as you're writing this book and, and talk about the ways that they are working together. They may not always agree on everything. They might not always vote exactly the same way but that they are, are are working together as a coalition to, to get things done. Yeah, I was really interested in some of their personal relationships and I don't necessarily know if they were that close personally, but they definitely allied with each other politically. And so I think there's various times in which they come together and work together as a group. Um, and that, that becomes formalized later on in terms of a caucus. But one of the things I really emphasize about Patsy Mink is that she is in mainstream politics, she's in electoral politics, but she's in conversation and dialogue with social movement activists. And so she's talking to them about what would be ideal policies to pass. And sometimes she doesn't necessarily even agree with some of the policies, but she thinks that those groups need to have that space, right? They need to have their ideas aired and given full consideration. Um, so I, um, instead of seeing 
her and other women in Washington, D.C. as outliers, they're really working in conjunction with people who are grassroots, who are forming organizations, who are trying to think about how can law be an avenue, a tool as part of a broader, broader movement towards justice. And Wendy, then you got to sometimes be that that sort of outside voice a little bit, uh, talking with your mom regularly, working on collaborative efforts from sort of outside inside. Could you talk a little bit about that and about the the conference on uh, welfare that that you joined hosted? I guess I was in conversation with my mother and my father throughout my life about politics and political issues and so forth. At some point, at some point, I became an adult. <laughs> and, and the discussions were not just a sort of exchange of opinion and the fleshing out of analyses, but also an exchange of expertise from multiple vantage points. Uh, in the 1990s, I, was, uh, I had been working historic, on historical questions having to do with the uh, gendered and, and racialized gendered formation of uh, U.S. social policy in the first half of the 20th century and then moved on to doing work um, on how those policies continue and the politics surrounding them uh, continue to enforce the inequality of marginalized women in the latter part of the 20th century. Um, and there were other scholars who were working in similar um, a similar vein, and we were all in conversation with each other as well. So as um, the whole sort of welfare reform bandwagon that entered into the political mainstream of Bill Clinton's election in 1992 uh, started to become a, a reality as a policy proposal. Feminist scholars, uh, welfare rights activists and communities, uh, artists and intellectuals who were concerned about what the, the punitive politics affecting women was gonna end up looking like, um, coalesced and articulated agendas. And, I carried those agendas into conversations with my mother, who had her own independent analysis that was, however, very similar to the ones that we uh, academics were, were beginning to espouse. And um, given the convergence of critical concern for the damaging consequences of uh, Clintonian welfare reform for women's equality, for women of color, for the whole concept of uh, maternal sovereignty and, and so forth, um, we decided to hold a conference that would foreground, spotlight those ideas to show the ways in which welfare reform was a women's issue. It was about women, even though nobody was willing to talk about it as a question that should be of concern, you know, first and foremost for its impact on, uh, on women and women's equality. And so in combination with the Institute for Women's Policy Research, we decided to hold a conference in 1993, in the fall of 1993, in anticipation of the proposals that would come from the mainstream Democratic establishment, as well as from the Republicans. And that was a sort of a threshold event that helped to seed additional political activity that lasted up to the early 2000s first in opposing welfare reform policy as it was evolving under Democratic and Republican auspices, and then to try to change it once it was implanted in public policy to 
restore the possibility of equality and and ending poverty for uh, low-income mothers and their kids. I want to make sure to highlight uh, the importance of local politics too. So I, I think it's uh, it, it pretty unusual, as far as I can tell, for someone to go from being in federal office uh, then to being on a city council, even for a, a very big city. Uh, and, and that's such a, an interesting move. And so uh, it seems so important to understanding sort of who Patsy Mink is and, and what she's trying to accomplish. So I wonder if we could reflect uh, just a little bit on that, on, on her move from Congress, and then when she loses the race for the Senate, being on the, the Honolulu City Council. Actually, I really love that period of her life. And maybe because also I'm middle age. <laughs> so when she leaves Congress, I think she's at this moment trying to think about what is next for her. It's been a very, it was, had been a very fruitful and exciting political life, but what's next on her trajectory? And she does spend time in the State Department and she also leads the American um, Democratic Action. Um, so she's not going back just to be in Honolulu. But what motivates her is that there is a trash burning plant that would be that was being proposed to be located in her neighborhood. And people were concerned and outraged about the environmental implications of that. And so predominantly working class, uh, lower middle class neighborhood, racially diverse. Um, so those communities tend not to have a say on what happens in their in in their community. Um, she worked with local activists and then decided that city council was actually very important. Um, and she ran for the office. So it just shows to me how consistent she has, she is, was um, as a political activist and political visionary, that she was didn't matter whether it was halls of Congress or Honolulu City Council, she was gonna push for environmental justice. She was gonna advocate for childcare. She was gonna try to find ways to address homelessness. It, um, she was gonna advocate for transparency in terms of democratic processes. It just really showed who she fundamentally was. And I love some of the local reactions to her. I don't know if we can swear on the show, but one of my favorite quotes is like, she doesn't take shit from anybody, <laughs> right? You really see that that strength and that type of political commitment. So uh, I do want to make sure we talk about Title IX because it is so important uh, and such a, a monumental achievement. Uh, so I am just young enough that Title IX has been around my whole life, and uh, I don't know the world without Title IX. Could we talk some about the how uh, how hugely important that is in, of course, people think about women's sports, but women's access uh, to, to education more generally uh, and and why this was a, a signature issue for Patsy Mink? It's a, a combination of factors, starting with her own personal experiences of exclusion in education on the basis of race and of gender uh, are sort of part of the process of developing an analysis for her, I think as a territorial and state legislator in the late 1950s and early 1960s, she took a great interest in education policy um, in the sort of, in this case, classical liberal, New Deal liberal kind of fashion. She saw education as a gateway to opportunity or education should be a gateway to opportunity, but obviously could not be if people were being held out, held back kept out um, on the basis of ascriptive factors. When she first got to Congress, 
the first sort of comprehensive or first large national investment in public education was on the table, the Elementary Secondary Education Act. So education, sort of the concept of the federal government kind of articulating priorities with respect to education was also on the table. So it was a milieu um, that made possible the raising of, of equality questions with respect to educational opportunity, educational access, educational resources, and the like. Over the course of the 1960s, uh, dealing with a lot of uh, great society issues, war on poverty issues, which her committee, which was the House Education and Labor Committee, dealt with as the authorized committee. She encountered uh, so many programs that were really sort of tailored to men, educational programs, uh, skills training programs vocational programs that were really tailored to men and grew increasingly frustrated uh, about the sort of general universe of education being a universe in which gender socialization and, and, and the exclusion of women was sort of second nature. And so out of that legislative experience, uh, policy observations and the like, in conjunction with the emerging women's movement and uh, the women's movement's claims to equality in the educational arena, the employment arena, and so forth, emerged this um, kind of uh, fever of activity to figure out ways to create legal or policy weapons that women could deploy to accomplish equality. One of those was the Equal Rights Amendment, which is also coming along at this point in terms of being actually voted for, voted and passed through uh, Congress. Um, and the other major one is uh, uh, what becomes Title IX, which initially begins as a as the concept of prohibiting discrimination uh, in educational programs where the federal government has invested its assistance. Several vehicles are discussed over this course of, I'd say, 69 to 71 period and it finally lands in an omnibus bill uh, in 1971 as the ninth chapter, Title IX, promising this, this new opportunity for girls and women to, to claim equality, even if it's gonna take hard work to actually get there. Maybe I'll just add a couple of things. One is that when the, for the 30th anniversary of Title IX, Patsy gave a very powerful speech and that was, year that she also passed away. And she talks about how she's so proud of Title IX that this is one of her greatest political achievements, but that also that there were various efforts to try to weaken it. And certainly you see that in the aftermath of that, the passage of Title IX, just different educational athletic interests writing in, you know, are there different ways that they can dilute the legislation? And so she really broadcasts the message that we have to be vigilant as, as citizens, as people who are politically aware that we need to protect these gains, that the law might be there, but the meaning of the law and the implementation of the law, that really comes from all of us to make sure that those principles are actually carried out. And then the other thing I guess I'll say is that when uh, Maxine Waters was giving a memorial speech about Patsy Ming, she talked about how they went to the WNBA game earlier together and that she looked at these really strong, tall women and how they were able to achieve their dreams of, of you know, being athletic stars. And, and that it really, a lot of it 
was a result of this very small woman. <laughs> so I love that kind of physical contrast. But Maxine Waters also talked about the fact that it was not just sports, it was all aspects of our educational experience from admissions, scholarship, housing, employment, right, the, the campus climate. And so it even if Title IX um, is not has not been enforced to the degree that it should be, that it at least provided the legal principles. I think Wendy talks about legal threshold, right, of what our expectations are in terms of gender and educational experience. Of course, as you were saying, being vigilant as citizens, uh, we can't escape the fact that we are speaking just days after uh, the draft opinion uh, leaked, where you know Justice Alito is is saying that that they're going to strike down Roe v. Wade and uh, Casey v. Planned Parenthood. So, I, you know, I wonder. You you end the introduction, Judy, by saying. Mink was a lifelong fighter who demanded social justice. A remembrance of her determination to speak truth to power will hopefully inspire us to do the same. Uh, and so I, I wonder if maybe, you know, I, I've thought the past few days, of like, what would Patsy Mink be doing and saying and, and fighting for today? So I wonder if maybe we could just uh, reflect a little bit on, on that and how we can sort of draw inspiration from her example for what, uh, what to do in the fight ahead. Mink was obviously someone who was committed to reproductive choice for women. And I am gonna talk about something that's fairly personal that affects Wendy as well. But one of the reasons why she was so committed is that she herself was subject to medical experimentation when she was pregnant with Wendy. She was exposed to DES. And at the time, this synthetic hormone was seen as potentially helpful for pregnant women to help alleviate miscarriages. But there was a medical researcher who didn't believe that was the case, wanted to run an experiment to prove that and expose some women to DES and expose other people to uh, placebo. And DES has had long-term impacts on people's lives, not just the mothers, but also their children. So there are DES daughters and DES sons. Um, it's been associated with higher incidence of, of cancer and it has had long-term reproductive implications right, for the children who've been exposed. So it's something that was deeply personal to both Patsy and Wendy, but I think it just underscores the need to have respect for women's bodies, to have respect for their ability to make decisions about their bodies, and that uh, there's deeply personal implications for these types of decisions, and they should be made by the women who are whose bodies are most impacted. Yeah, as for what she would say in terms of strategy going forward. I think three days after seeing the draft opinion, I'm not sure she would have a finely developed strategy, frankly. I mean, it's a, it's a period of, of deep darkness. In the early 1990s, of course, people were nervous before the Casey decision was rendered that the court would take that case as an opportunity to severely roll back, if not uh, rescind the uh, key elements of, of Roe. And in that context, not only did they engage the fight over the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court, but they also tried to get a hearing for the uh, Freedom of Choice Act, which was a, uh, intended to codify Roe versus Wade. The Democrats then, and it would appear the Democrats in the Senate now were not able to mobilize majorities capable of enacting such a statute. I'm not sure given the 
scope of the Alito opinion, the draft opinion, that a statute is a sufficient answer to the withdrawal of rights. So I don't know. I mean, I know that she would want to, you know, she would be she would be brainstorming with people about to figure out the best way forward in these circumstances. But I don't think that evidence, I don't want to speak for her, (laughs) but I I think that she would agree that the the answer to our current very dark dilemma is not self-evident, that we're going to have to be politically creative because the ramifications are so profound and take so many different forms from the potential definition of abortion as homicide in Louisiana, which is happening right now in the state legislature, punishing people who go out of state to exercise their abortion rights and so forth. So I don't have anything conclusive to say about what she would want to do necessarily other than fight on, stand up, fight on, stand in solidarity with everyone who is going to be injured by this ruling. Yeah. So uh, just like the book could have been 10 volumes, this episode could be 10 parts, but we're going to wrap it up now and people should just go buy the book and and read that. So can you tell everyone how they can buy the book? Well, hopefully they can uh, buy the book at booksellers everywhere, or at least they can ask their local bookseller to order it for them. It's also available online site vendors of, of books. I won't name the main one that people go to, but it's there. And it can be ordered through uh, the publisher, New York University Press, nyupress.edu. Excellent. Is there anything else that either of you wanted to make sure we talk about? Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate the questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I, I am so thrilled uh, that that you both spoke with me and that you wrote such a, a beautiful book. It has been uh, very inspirational to me, and I, I, I hope that other people will will pick it up and read it. I, I think it is it is too bad that that Patsy Mink doesn't get more recognition uh, and and more celebration. And I, I hope that your book will change that. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. You can find the sources used for this episode at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. MSW.